0: I took it very lightly at the beginning. I didn't understand that when you partner with someone, especially in business, especially when equity is involved, it's essentially like getting married. And if you have to leave that partnership, it's stressful. And so my partner at the time, the gentleman that I co-founded the company with was operating the business in a way I didn't agree with and making decisions that I didn't agree with. But I had very little equity compared to him. He was an 80% owner. I was a 20% owner. And so anytime that we would have have the challenging conversations of, hey, I don't agree with this, or I don't agree with that, oftentimes they would end in, well, I'm 80%. So we're doing it this way. This was happening for a while before I left. And it was very hard for me to leave because I put my blood, sweat and tears into the company. But it eventually got to a point where if I stayed, I thought I was risking my reputation.
1: Welcome, I am your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Our guest last week was Gaia van der Esch, a former Forbes 30 under 30 and currently the managing director of 3Zero, an organization whose goal is to bring zero exclusion, zero carbon and zero poverty to the world. We talked about how she found her way to leadership by getting bigger and bigger responsibilities, until she realized that she was indeed a leader, and how that realization changed her perspective on what it is possible for her. Our guest today also had an interesting journey. Daniel Herder started his career in a Fortune 500 software company, but left to join a CBD cannabis company. He is now the CEO of that company, Pure Spectrum, but the journey wasn't easy or linear. At the peak of the company's success, Daniel decided to leave Spectrum because he felt his co-founder and majority partner wasn't behaving according to his values. See, Daniel decided to join the industry out of a sense of mission, after understanding how CBD oil can play a role in improving the lives of patients and athletes. That passion led him to jump headfirst into a partnership that ultimately wasn't a good fit. In our conversation, Daniel talks at length about the events that led to his leaving and then how he went back to the company. He also shares some of the mistakes that young and passionate entrepreneurs sometimes make when they're deciding who to partner with, and he shares some of the steps that they can take to avoid those mistakes. Enjoy. Daniel, let's start the same way I start every podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself to my listeners? Tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're doing now, how you got here and you can take as little or as much time as you would like. Awesome.
0: Well, Dino, thanks for having me. My name is Daniel Herder. I am currently the CEO of a company called Pure Spectrum. We are a hemp-based wellness company. Uh, Your listeners might know the acronym CBD more. And so most of our products do have CBD in them, but we are focused on a bunch of different cannabinoids and cannabinoids, a long word for what CBD is classified as. I got into this just because I got invited to a grand opening at the very, very beginning of this industry. And I got to experience the lives of people who had been changed through the use of this product. And uh, it was enough for me to see that there was a more fulfilling path in my career to truly try to help people. So currently, what we're doing at Pure Spectrum is we're on a mission to help 1 million people and
1: animals feel better naturally. You mentioned that you started your career in this field when you participated in a conference. What was your background before you entered in this industry?
0: Yeah, I, um, went to the University of Kansas School of Business and I graduated with a degree in information systems and a concentration in supply chain management. I left college and went to a career for six years in software. So I worked for the enterprise software division of Lexmark, which is, you know, a Fortune 20 company. I think it's a very large corporation. They had just acquired a local software company to me in Kansas City. And at the time, the software that I became really familiar with that I utilized and implemented, designed and and helped put into different places uh, was a software that basically got rid of paper in the workplace. So I worked in the public side, I was working for universities and colleges, and even then they still had giant rooms of filing cabinets and things like that. And so helping to design processes to eliminate a lot of that paper and need for paper and then make it easier for them to search their millions of documents that they had. So that was kind of where the career started. And uh, eventually, one of my last projects, I was actually working for the United States Senate, uh, helping design the enterprise content management system for the HR department of the US Senate, which was a really cool opportunity. I got to ride like the little train between the Senate and Congress and see some of America's history there while I was there. So it was cool that I that I worked up to that high in the company where they trusted me with a project that big. And so I had a, a pretty cushy job too, Dino. I, the the company I started for, we had a, a slide in between the second and first floor. If you didn't want to take the stairs, we had a dodgeball court in the basement. We had free drinks and food catered in on Fridays and kegs on Fridays that started at three o'clock. Like as far as the corporate world goes, I don't know that you could really have a better job. So uh, it's not really like I was running from something, but more running to something when I left there.
1: I know you said you were not running from something, but running to something. But what was missing for you in that world? Because it's a pretty drastic transition. I think if I were to
0: boil it down to a word, it'd be fulfillment. I enjoyed working with different people every week. I love people. And so that part I enjoyed, but I couldn't see the impact directly of removing paper from from companies. Like I didn't find fulfillment. I didn't feel like I was really living what could be considered my life's purpose, right? Like there wasn't it, there was something bigger missing. There was a bigger mission that I wasn't on. I was working that job because it was one of the highest paying jobs you could get out of college. And I enjoyed it. I was racking up points on hotel points and airline points. And it was fun. It g- gave me a chance to see the world a bit and, and travel solo, which allowed me to really learn myself and learn what I like and enjoy. But it. It was missing fulfillment. I I didn't have that like drive to get out of bed every morning because I was making a, a huge difference in people's lives. I didn't really feel like, like if I wasn't there, someone else would have done it right. They would have just put someone else in my shoes and it didn't, I didn't feel that like calling that bigger purpose.
1: You go to this conference. And you make the decision to transition from this giant corporate America job to, I assume, a much smaller, were you a co-founder or did you join an existing entity?
0: At the time, I joined an existing entity. I didn't fully jump in at the time. I started a side hustle, essentially. And so I was still working for the the large corporation. And then nights and weekends, I essentially would purchase from this already established company and then act as a wholesaler. So I would resell uh, back in my home state, back in my home city of Kansas City. And that's where it started. And then someone that was a part of that company had left, told me a story that essentially he didn't have contracts signed and didn't have the ownership he thought he did. So he was starting his own company and uh, called me and asked if I would start it with him, if I'd be a co-founder. And so I went to the large corporate job and said, hey, guys, am I allowed to... Move somewhere? Can I move to Colorado? And they were like, "Yeah, as, as long as you can get to our, your clients and you're getting your 40 hours of billable work done, like that's fine." Um, and so I moved out to Denver, moved into this guy's basement, and we started Pure Spectrum. Uh, me, him, and and his girlfriend at
1: the time. As you started building Pure Spectrum, what were some of the key principles that you had and you wanted to be as a founder? As and as you thought about it, how to scale it,
0: yeah. Honestly, our North Star was how do we help as many people as possible? Like that was it. Uh, We didn't think much more about it. It was that. And so that driving us and that knowing that we had created a great product, it was kind of the industry's first broad spectrum product, which is industry vocabulary to say, like, we put as much in into our product as we could without THC. So all of our products were THC free, we had a lot of athletes using our product, police officers, first responders, people who would be drug tested. And if they tested positive for THC, they would lose their salary. So we did not take it lightly of the fact that our responsibility was to these people. And so How how do we help as many people as possible? With that being your North Star, we actually gave away a ton of product in the beginning because we had such faith in our product that if we gave away a 100 bottles, 70 people would come back to us with a crazy story of how it helped them or how it helped someone close to them. And so that's really where it started. It was kind of a grassroots approach was we just need to get this product. It is in as many hands as possible. And we trusted the product enough. We had created a great product that people would be coming back and then they would want to share with their friends and family. And that, that's really where it started. That was our, our genius marketing plan at, at first was give away a bunch of product for free <laughs> and see what happens.
1: At the beginning, you were still working in parallel for Lexmark. When did you know that it was possible to go 100% into your new venture?
0: It's a bit of a complex story, but there was a point where we kind of had two other companies at the time. In the very beginning, there was one company that was focused on the THC side. There was one company that was focused on creative delivery methods. And so we kind of existed in There wasn't really an umbrella corporation over us, but like the three of us existed in unity and an investor came in and invested into the three companies. And so an investor came in and put $2 million into all three companies and 200,000 of which was earmarked for pure spectrum. And so that gave me enough confidence that I could at least replace my salary, that I would be able to pay my bills and I wouldn't, you know be at risk of anything there. And so that was ultimately, once we got to that point, I saw the revenue growing, I saw that we were on the right path. But if that didn't come in, I probably would have waited longer to to leave my job. But once that came in, I felt pretty confident that at least the next six months or, or a year would be covered by that. And then we'd be able to grow to a point where my salary would be fine uh, after that.
1: And then did the company grow and start hiring people, building a team? How was the evolution of the company over the time that you were there and and up to now?
0: You know, we didn't like really recruit hard. It was like
1: this guy at
0: the gym had seen us around and he was like, Hey, what are you guys up to? What are you doing? And he was like, I... I haven't done sales before, but maybe I could do sales. And and so we hired two gentlemen at the same time, uh, which became like members three and four of the company, or four and five. And we paid them um, five hundred a week on a draw. And so we said, go try to go out and try to make sales. Uh, you're basically building the sales department. We don't have a, an official sales department. We hired them, and they. Both were pretty successful. They both were able to, you know, make more money than the the five hundred a week by finding sales. And yeah, and then we started to build on the team from there. I think we started the company at the very end of twenty fifteen. I think by early twenty seventeen, we had like ten to fifteen employees already. And I think at our peak of employees, I think we got all the way up to like forty five uh,
1: at one point. You're working in an industry that, first of all, the world isn't really clear on. Definitely a portion of the world that may have you know, doubts or skepticism about the value of the industry. Another portion of the world may even think that you're doing something that is potentially illegal. How do you think about setting up the culture of the company and then making sure that it really represented your vision for your mission? Our
0: culture was helped out drastically because... Everyone that started with the company had a... Impactful personal story of how the product affected them or someone very close to them. So, myself, uh, you know, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease at 10 years old and it greatly helped my stomach issues. And my co founder at the time, Brady, he had Tourette's syndrome and uh, it greatly helped his tics and Tourette's. And then the third co founder, his girlfriend at the time, Kim, she was walking out of a grocery store at one point and a dolly rolled off a truck and hit her in the back of the head, gave her a traumatic brain injury. And she didn't think she would be able to Get back to that same point in life that she was until she found CBD and CBD products. So the three of us all had very personal stories to to how it affected us. And then everyone that we hired after that kind of had that same thing. And if it wasn't them personally, it was someone very close to them. And so we all really, really believed in our mission and what we were doing, which really helped the culture. And for me, you know, I was COO as the co-founder. And uh, I dealt directly with the people. I managed everyone. And in business school, I always uh, was attracted to the leaders that put the people first, that put, you know, Like Herb Kelleher was one of my favorite leaders to learn about of Southwest. And like, he did things the opposite of everyone else in the industry. Everyone else was worried about the bottom line and the revenue. And he was worried about the customer experience and his people. And that ended up paying out for him in the long run. And so that paired with, I'm a giant Simon Sinek fan and I was kind of reading his book, Leaders Eat Last, over and over again in the early days of the company. And so a lot of those lessons that I learned from leaders before me that I really looked up to, I tried to embed in the company. And we really tried to take a a simple approach of make the customer experience, make the customers your North Star, do right by the customers, do right by us as leadership will do right by you as employees, you as employees do right uh, by the customers, and then it'll all uh, work itself out. It's if you leave that as a North Star, all the decisions that you make in business become pretty easy. Like either it's good for the customer or it isn't, or it's better for the customer or it's worse, but there's always a way if you can put that lens on it. And I think if you put the lens of is it better for the bottom line or top line or not, like, you're going to make poor decisions, uh, especially when you play it out over a long run than if you just do do what's right for your team and, and what's the customer's.
1: Would you mind sharing maybe a couple of practical decisions where that came into play and either in something that, you know, you said, we do right by our employees and then they do right by the customer. Like a couple of examples for somebody who is thinking about implementing a similar philosophy. Yeah. The first thing that came to
0: mind because it was the decision that we got the most pushback on. Obviously, we have shareholders to answer to. We have owners of the company to answer to, and we had a very profitable line. Um, so in our early days, we sold both vape juice and actual vape products, uh, cartridges, things like that. It was a very profitable line for us and we want to do right by customers and we, created a vape line because at the time, the science showed that the quickest way to get CBD into someone's system and to break the blood brain barrier was to vape it. And so, we were like, okay, great. This is going to be our fast acting product. We want to provide this for people. And More and more studies were coming out of is vaping safe, right? Is heating up a metal cartridge to these high, high temperatures? Is it safe? Are you getting heavy metals? Are you getting plastics? Are you getting glue? Are you getting other things with it? And we decided we couldn't say yes to that. We didn't know that it was fully safe to be vaping anything. And we canceled the whole line, although it was making I think it was making a few million dollars profitably, it wasn't worth it to us because we plan on being a company for decades to come and our credibility with our customers and them knowing that everything we put out, we know is going to be safe and effective. And if we can't answer those questions. So now I've made it even simpler on my brain of if I'm putting out a product, my litmus test for putting out that product is, would I allow my mom to have it? And so, would I allow my mom to vape something? No, I wouldn't. Her lungs are frail. She has asthma and uh, is dealing with a couple of battles of cancer right now. And I would not let my mom have that product. So, I'm not going to put it out to the rest of the world. So, when we do right by the customers, it's it was a bad business decision, right? If we have solely business decision, that's making money, you know, find another way, spin it off as another brand or something, but keep selling it, maybe don't even let people know. But all of that felt disingenuous and not authentic. Obviously, your podcast is all about being authentic. And it didn't feel authentic to to try to do that. So we we just killed it. We crushed it. We no longer ordered the product. Those that still wanted it, we allowed to get the rest of our inventory and we were done with it. And so that was a way that we've done right by the customers that, you know, maybe didn't make the most sense business wise. And then doing right by our employees. We do a lot of things for our employees. You know, we do kind of the standard, you know, uh, unlimited PTO and things like that. But we all really try to support each other through everything that we do. We're a pretty close-knit group and it allows us to be there for each other in the hard times personally and make room for that. So uh, we also have uh, the ability for employees to take mental health days, things like that, where we want them performing at their best and we want them to be happy and fulfilled in their job because we think that if you're happy and fulfilled, you're more creative. You're going to think of better and better ideas. You're going to allow us to better serve our customers. So we take care of our own first and foremost and just like Simon says in his book right if you're in that inner circle of trust if you're in the company you have nothing to worry about so you can help us become the best that we can be
1: yeah and it's also I I guess like if your purpose of the company is a sort of making life better for people in general it needs to be consistent with the way that you operate right right exactly right I want to shift tack for a second so you started a company company was pretty successful, grew up to 45 employees, and then you ended up leaving and then coming back. Wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing the story behind what was the driver of leaving and then what was the driver of coming back?
0: Yeah, I left because I was learning the hard way a rule, a law of entrepreneurship. When you partner with someone I took it very lightly at the beginning. I didn't understand that when you partner with someone, especially in business, especially when equity is involved, it's essentially like getting married. And if you have to leave that partnership, it's stressful. And so my partner at the time, the gentleman that I co-founded the company with was operating the business in a way I didn't agree with and making decisions that I didn't agree with. But I had very little equity compared to him. He was an 80% owner, I was a 20% owner. And so anytime that we would have the challenging conversations of, hey, I don't agree with this, or I don't agree with that, oftentimes they would end in, well, I'm 80%. So we're doing it this way. And eventually, this was happening for a while before I left. And it was very hard for me to leave because I put my blood, sweat, and tears into the company. I cashed in my four hundred one k from that software job. I went all in. There was no other option for me, and I didn't see a way out. But I loved the company so much that it was very hard for me to leave. But it eventually got to a point where, if I stayed, I. W- thought I was risking my reputation. And if I stayed, it would be seen as condoning some uh, unagreeable behavior. And I had to make the hard decision to leave. I remember I pulled some employees that were very close to me aside, and I told them of the decision and I didn't want them to hear it from anyone else. And so it was a uh, choking up a little bit. Now it's four years, but it was a very, very tough decision for me. It was very tough to walk away because I always thought like, maybe something could change. Maybe we could get big enough and, and you know, something would change. Maybe something would crack open and it just, nothing was changing and it couldn't change. And so I had to make a change. So I left.
1: Before we go to the next phase, actually, you said something that is really important, which I think will be very helpful to our listeners. So you mentioned that you got into this partnership, you were super enthusiastic, and maybe you overlooked a number of things. So, if you had to give advice to somebody who, just like you, gets very passionate about a product or an industry, and they really want to be part of it, they have an opportunity to go in with a partner, what are some of the key steps that you would take now before you enter the partnership?
0: What's the rush, right? There's so many vehicles for partnerships that allow you to Slowly step into it. And so vesting is a common term that people understand, but putting guardrails on a partnership, I think is really important and understanding really who that person is at their core. Not so I was young and my mistake, and I've done it more than once, is I mistaked confidence for competence. And those weren't the same thing. And I thought just because they had this bravado to them and they had this almost magnetism to them, they could really lead a crowd and and, and things like that must mean that they're good in every area of their life. And what I would do now is I would slow down, slow down and really understand who that person is, almost interview them if you can, in a way or over time of like, what are their core values what's important to them and then be around it enough to see is that true is that are those words or is that true because if you're around someone enough and if they're put in stressful situations who they really are is going to come out and for me personally what i would do now is introduce them to my fiance because when she met this gentleman she knew right away <laughs> like She told me that day that something that I didn't see for another year and a half, she was like, be careful with this guy. She saw it right away. And so uh, if you have someone that's more perceptive than you around you, introduce them, take them out and see. But I would would slowly walk into partnerships. And then on the other side, if you're offering a partnership to someone, put some guardrails in. Say like, hey, I think this is going to be awesome. Uh, I think this is what you're capable of. Let's work together for a while and say like, you know, uh, if we hit these milestones, or if we last this long, there's different ways of saying this is the equity I want to give you, but we need to get here first together before I'm willing to, to let those those doors open. And so um, there's a lot of different ways. And uh, there's probably someone that you know, that's dealt with equity in some way, shape or form, talk to them, go over, have a conversation with them. Because on the other side of that, you know, I've made more mistakes and i've had to learn the hard way a lot of times about partnerships and it's not fun i would much rather have done it the right way up front and really understood my own value to the company um because i thought the path that i was getting equity at all was awesome and then all of a sudden i'm doing 90% of the work for 20% of the company
1: that's actually a common mistake that that founder that come into situations with that passion go. They found somebody that, you know, as you said, has a lot of confidence. They feel that that's going to be their opportunity to explode and they give too much control and they found themselves that they've given up too much value. So how did you come back
0: When I left, I started another company. I stayed in the industry, but I knew I wanted to be fully removed. So I actually took eight months of negotiation to sell my equity back to the company. I ended up selling for literal pennies on the dollar of what it was worth because they were trying to tie me up into a non-compete. Non-competes normally don't stand up unless, this is important for your listeners, unless it's tied to a sale of equity then non-compete stand up. And I knew that. And I knew if I had a non-compete, again, I got started at the very beginning of the industry at a young age. And so at the time when I was leaving, I was 28 or 29 and I was a dinosaur in the industry at 28 or 29. And so I realized the value of that. And if I kept going on that path, how much more valuable that that could become. And I just, it wasn't worth it to me to sit out of the industry for a couple of years while it was growing so quickly and changing so fast. So I took a bet on myself. I sold it for pennies on the dollar and started a hemp and distribution company for a couple of years, actually working with All of what would have been seen as our competitors, but distributing for them. And so understanding what was working for them, we built a website called directhemp.com, which we were trying to make kind of the bodybuilding.com of the hemp and CBD world. And so we had all of these awesome brands next to each other in the same marketplace. And so I got to see firsthand these brands up against each other, what was selling, what was moving the customer, what price point affected, all of these things. I was getting all of this data and insight in the industry. And so we were very successful with that model out of the gate. But I also learned my style of entrepreneurship. I wasn't fulfilled again. I had that same feeling I had in the corporate world of like, I was just working for somebody else. I was just working a job and I
1: didn't have control of the product or anything there. I love you said it. I knew my style of entrepreneurship. So I'm interested in hearing, when did you start really articulating and figuring out exactly what your style of entrepreneurship so it was clear to you? And then, you know, would you be willing to define what what is your style of entrepreneurship?
0: You know, there's a, b- a bunch of different styles, and I have a respect for a lot of them. Uh, I think one of them that flies under the radar is kind of what's known as like unsexy businesses, things like that, right? Like boring businesses, I think Cody Sanchez calls them. And that's not my style. I don't like boring businesses. And I also don't love selling other people's product. I love the branding side of things. I love the storytelling side of things. I love having control of what I'm putting out and what I'm selling. And so, you know, there's plenty of people who can drop ship product and, and do that. But if I can't vouch for it, if I haven't controlled the process and know you know, exactly what's going into that product and exactly what it is that I'm selling to people, I can't put my full energy behind it. And so uh, my style is from the ground up. I, I want uh, to have a piece or a part of all of it. And so I learned that through trying other methods and I and understanding that like this wasn't didn't fill me with the same passion. It didn't allow me to get out of bed as soon as the alarm rang in the morning, right? Because I was excited about the day. I didn't have that anymore. And then some of the brands that we were selling for started making decisions that I didn't agree with, uh, putting out products that I didn't fully agree with. And I'm distributing for them. So I still have to sell these products, even though I don't fully believe in them. And so for me, it's that having to have that full belief in exactly what I'm selling to someone that is, I believe, even more valuable than the money I'm asking in return. And so that was what was most important to me because I was lost for those couple of years, even as we were doing the distribution company. I tried some side gigs to figure out dropshipping. And that was just like, oh, you can get on Alibaba and sell this 20 cent piece of garbage for $20 all day long through Facebook ads and make a killing. But like it just felt gross to me. And I didn't want that either. So yeah, my style of entrepreneurship is I love the branding. I love the storytelling. I love building a brand around community and and being a part of that community. And when I'm distributing for a bunch of different brands, you don't really have that community. Even trying to build DirectHemp.com there wasn't, it wasn't there. And so having that branding, having that community is really, really important to me.
1: And so what was the opportunity to get back into pure spectrum and then as the CEO now? Yeah. So it was crazy timing, a uh, super interesting timing.
0: I had told my partner, he left the company with me at the same time. So when we started that distribution company, he left for the same reasons. And I told him, I sat him down. I was like, Hey man, I'm not enjoying this, not the way I need to be. And so I told him, I'll be here as long as you need me, but start looking for another operator. Start looking for somebody because I'm looking for something else. And we were very amicable with each other. It was easy to talk through it. And the week later, I get a call and it's a lawyer and a lawyer representing all of the shareholders of Pure Spectrum. And he said, Hey, Dan, your former partner lost some equity in a court case, he's now gone below 50% of the company. And the operating agreement allows for a vote of no confidence and for him to be fired as CEO and removed from the company. And we believe once we do that, uh, we'll also be able to remove his equity because of some of the decisions that he had made. And they said, To do so, it's going to be a hostile takeover. We need a replacement named before we make this decision. And uh, all of the shareholders have unanimously selected that if we could have anyone be CEO, uh, it'd be you. Are you interested at all? I said no and I hung up the phone. Do you know? I was like, No way am I going back in there. No chance. I was like, I had no visibility. I didn't know how. Uh, the company had been ran in the past two years. I didn't know if there was a mess left behind I didn't know if revenue had risen or sank i had i was to say yes to that I had to go in blind and it just seemed risky. It was so so hard for me to walk away from the company it I went to therapy for a year and a half after walking away from the company for not just that for personal reasons I'm always trying to grow and you know i had this this partner that like I thought was someone completely different, and so I kind of felt like I couldn't trust my own moral the uh, judge of character anymore, which I thought like innately in me was really really good. I thought I could trust that like judge of character up front, and so I felt like I had instruments that before I could trust that are now broken in me, and so you know I was going to therapy i was uh I was kind of lost after that after I left the company, and so I had gotten to a point of peace with leaving the company. And so to go back in was crazy to me. Like, no, no, I'm not doing that. I hung up the phone within two minutes. Like it didn't take me long. No, not doing it. Now your next question was, "Well, you're back here now. So what happened, right?" My, she's my girlfriend at the time. She's my fiance now. She was actually our director of customer service. We were at the the company together. We were dating before we brought her on. And in those early days, as I said, uh, the three co founders was me, him, and, and his girlfriend. So one of the our first hires was was my girlfriend at the time, and she through that became one of the best directors of customer service you can have, if not definitely in our industry, she's the best. There's no one else if we didn't have a relationship, I would still want to hire her. She's incredible. And so she's also a very, very compassionate individual. I think I'm compassionate, but she's next level compassionate. And because of that makes her a great director of customer service, but she was able to, to help me have a new perspective on coming back into the company of, she sat me down and was like, Dan, I know your North star is you want to help as many people as you can. And you could start up your own brand right now, right? You don't have a non-compete and you are able able to create these great products that help people. But couldn't you help more people by going back into Pure Spectrum? Think of all the shareholders that are friends of yours that are very close to you. Think of all the employees that are still there to this day that are very close to you. Couldn't you help all of them too? And I hadn't seen it like that. And she was right. She was right. And so, I eventually... (laughs) I want to say called back. They called me like every other day thinking I would change my mind. And so eventually I answered and, and I was like, yeah, I'll do it. I don't love that. I don't have visibility. I do have some demands and requirements of if I'm coming back in, but I'll do it. And so went back in, performed a hospital takeover, which sounds crazy, right? Sounds like something out of a movie. It wasn't as dramatic as maybe even you would hope in that situation, like, oh, all of a sudden I get to fire this guy that I didn't love. Um, And so now I'm empowered to fire this individual. It's going to be a great moment. He wasn't even there. Like it ended up, he was terminated through an email. I terminated both uh, the legal teams that he had, essentially performed triage on the company, assessed where it was, where it was going, what needed fixed right away, and kind of did that. And the first month was... Crazy. It was uh, extremely challenging. But I knew that through the challenge, no matter what happened, I would become a better leader, I would become more skilled. And I would, I plan on being an entrepreneur for the rest of my life. And I still look at myself as very young. And so, at very least, I was going to learn and I was going to learn these complex situations and how to navigate them so the next time i'm approached with a very complex situation i at least have some confidence going in it that i've been there before i've at least done something like it so i got called back in and accepted the call and it's been
1: we're a couple weeks away from two years of being back in, in the seat of ceo what has changed for you as a leader now after all these experiences compared to when you know you started as a founder a lot has changed so when I came back in the company, there were
0: predefined defined goals of, Dan, this is what we're going to do. You're going to get the revenue to X, we're going to sell it to the whole company for X. And that's all we need you to do. And so very finite goals. And like I said earlier, I'm a big Simon Sinek fan. And he had just put out a book called The Infinite Game. And he talks about having an infinite mindset in there and uh, alludes back to some of the great founders like the Waltons and how Sam Walton didn't say, I want to create a company that makes $200 million or billions of dollars like Walmart does today. They got there because he was on an infinite mission of I want to lower the cost of living for everyone around a Walmart. That was the goal. And that goal is never going to be achieved. That cost of living is always going to be changing. There's always going to be things to be done there. And so that book really showed me why I was making poor decisions because I made a lot of poor decisions coming back into the company because I was just so focused on this revenue target of we're going to build the company to this revenue target and we're going to sell it for a multiple and I'll tie a pretty bow on it. And that's the end of pure spectrum. And I finally went back to those same people and I was like, I can't do it. I can't lead the company like this. I need to have an infinite mindset. I need to know that this company is going to outlast me and it's going to continue to help as many people as possible feel better naturally. A lot of people come to us hoping that they can get off X, Y, or Z pharmaceutical. And that was you know, my big purpose. Uh, As I said, I grew up with Crohn's disease. And so, thinking with an infinite mindset is one of the biggest changes that I've had. But also I had to lay off half the staff after I came in. I had to and I before SCOO, it was kind of a running joke in the leadership team of the company that don't ask Dan to fire someone. Because I think I was like 0 and three when I was asked to fire someone if you came in my office, if you cried a little bit and told me you were gonna change, then I would I'd be like, okay, yeah, you're probably right. Let's give you another chance, right? And because I always thought, I always assumed that firing someone was going to be bad for them. That was a bad thing. That meant whatever happened after, they they just lost their income, right? Like that's a bad thing. And I didn't have an open mindset that I do have now. I've let go of half the staff, right? As I said, and. So many of them are in such a better situation and they're living a more fulfilling life and they're in a better, that was one of the best things that happened to them was being let go of the job. And since then, you know, I have to protect the team and I've had to fire some people. Uh, and I have always dreaded that because I always thought it was a bad thing. And there's, I don't know if you're familiar with the old Chinese farmer fable of like his horses run away and all of his Say Like, that's horrible. And he's like, well, maybe, right? And I've really taken that story into heart because I was so quick to judge things as good or bad. And if I'm firing you, that must be bad for your life. And so many times, it ends up better for them and it's exactly what they needed. And some of those people are running their own company now and they're extremely fulfilled and they're living their dream life. And it was so hard on me to let them go because I thought I was gonna be bad and it ended up being good. And so just making the right decision for the company and making sure to come back and Uh, instill core values in the company. It wasn't clear what was the, the, the values of the company, what would get you hired or fired and things like that. And so just getting really clear on all of those and understanding all of it has made me a lot better of a leader.
1: You just mentioned instilling core values of the company. Is that an exercise that you did with your management team, with your investors? How did you come up with the core values? It's still evolving to this
0: day. And so it was an uh, an exercise I did with the team, actually, with the employees, the ones that were going to have to live them day in and day out. And so I wanted them to be authentic. And so I think a lot of people, a a team's core values are going to stem from your individual core values, Uh, the people, right? Uh, Companies are made of people. And a lot of people say what their ideal core values are or what they think their core values should be. And so they'll put pretty words on a piece of paper. These are core values, but the only way you can actually know your core values is to pay attention, take two weeks and pay attention. To everything that pisses you off, everything that you know makes you angry or drives something in you. Cause that's your core value. Pay attention to that. And like, if, I showed up late today and it really irritated you and you were really upset about that. Well, maybe one of your core values is timeliness, right? Maybe one of your core values is, is respecting other people's times. And so like, I think you just have to observe and you have to like, understand that like these things that make you angry are for a reason. That's a, that's a, flag going up in your mind of like, okay, but why are you angry? Because you have a core value that's being violated in some way is probably why you're being angry. So, look at that. Look one step deeper of, okay, what is that core value then, right? If someone lies to you and that really angers you, why? Because you have a core value of honesty. Right. And so it was a, an exercise with a team of everyone figure out their own core values. Take the time, take the next couple of weeks, but start paying attention to those moments in life where you're either really inspired by something like someone else did. And because that could be a, a sign of a core value, too, you don't just have to, to do the negative, right? You can do it on the positive side, too, um, but start paying attention to that. And like, let's all come back with our core values. And the easiest way to build a team core value is did we have overlap? Out of the whole team, do we have a, a common core value? That's immediately a team core value. And then what are the other ones that we like that we maybe didn't even think of? and then kind of go around like that. So it's a a really fun practice if you haven't done that with your team because you also get to learn a lot about your team. You're going to learn about what they, makes them tick as individuals and what's important to them, which will allow you to manage them and lead them better if you understand them at a deeper level. So a very, very valuable practice to do with your whole team.
1: Well, that's great. Dan, this has been a fascinating conversation. So I think this is a great time to, Tell my listeners if they want to find you or the company, where should they go? Yeah,
0: so the company you can find us, the website is Pure spectrum and if you want to find me we are we started a new account for me that's just big business focused and so i talk a lot about hemp but i talk a lot about natural wellness entrepreneurship things that i know uh from experience and so you can follow those accounts it's dan hemp man. So pretty easy, just three words, Dan hemp man on Instagram and TikTok. Those are pretty brand new accounts. I think I have like 200 300 followers on those, but we're building them from the ground up. It's hard to build a social following in hemp and CBD. Instagram still doesn't like my industry too much. So would definitely appreciate a follow on those ones. And yeah, that's the easiest way. Uh, and if you reach out to me through there, I'll, I'll see it and I'll definitely respond because
1: I want to take care of, of the community that are building there great so now we're going to go to the personal questions first question is what is a hobby or a passion that you have outside of work and how has it maybe influenced the way that you work and you think about work the biggest thing for me is
0: live music so i have a hobby of seeing as many concerts as i possibly can we started the company in evergreen colorado which is 10 minutes from Red Rocks. So I went to every single Red Rocks show I could go to. Whether I knew the artist or not, it didn't matter. And live music is, I spend half the concert looking at the opposite direction of the stage, looking back and just seeing people enjoy their favorite artist or singing every word. Like It just lights a fire in me to see people enjoying life that way. And it's just nourishing to my soul to be able to have those moments. It reminds me of why I work so hard because I want to give those same type of like key life moments to my family and friends and things like that. And so music just has always spoken to my soul. There's a few different albums out there that like no matter what happens, I can put those on, I can sit with them and I can get myself to a better mindset pretty pretty fast mean um, so it's a uh, music has a very very powerful effect on me and so live music is kind of the ultimate of that and i love seeing an artist show up on stage and, and get to be authentically themselves and get to learn more about them because obviously you have that like banter between songs and you get to learn if they're kind of like nerdy or they're like, yeah, they have funny jokes or whatever so yeah that's that's probably the biggest one and then uh, shows up in business like i said it's just uh, one of my core values and it's pretty high on the list is fun I think if you're not having fun along the way you're going to get burnt out pretty quick so so look for areas in life to have fun.
1: Well so I'm going to swap my second and third question actually because the third question I call it food for the body or food for the soul and if you know food for the body some you can choose to do a recipe or a drink that you like or if you go the soul route I ask my guest to share with me either a book or a piece of music or a piece of art or a movie That is really nourishing to them so if you want to stay within the music for this question you can you can go another way if if you don't want to go this way but you mentioned there's a few albums that are really good for you what's an album that right now is really inspiring you
0: there's two that come to mind there's one he's a hip-hop artist called mike formerly known as mike stud Uh, but if you look him up now it's just mike period and he's got an album called the highs he's making one called the lows and the in-betweens but the highs really reflects just he's an independent artist and what he talks about the in there, he kind of alludes to manifestation and the power of positive thinking. And it's just a very positive album. It's a it's an album that can really keep you in a positive headspace, but one that's still hardworking and things like that. So, I love that. And then the other one, I like a lot of independent rock and things like that. And there's a an independent ro- rock album called... I want to butcher the name. But the artist name is the Backseat Lovers. There's some young kids, so it's kind of a, a funny artist name. But their first album was incredible, called "When We Are Young." And their their second one, I hated like the first five listens, but it's just now starting to really grow on me. The lyrics in there, it's a very melancholy album, but it captures a lot of feelings that I think a lot of people have, like why does the plant on the windowsill reflect my state of mind growing and dying all the time and like there's just these these lyrics that seem surface level at first and i think once you reflect and sit with them for a while you realize that they're they're a lot deeper so those are the two that that came to mind immediately
1: that's great i'm going to close with what is my favorite question and which is in uh, business there are like expressions, jargons, cliches that at some point lose meaning, which is the one that drives you crazy? (laughs) If you love what you do, you won't work a day in your life. Drives me nuts,
0: Dino. Are you kidding me? When you love what you do, you never work harder. You work nights, you work weekends, you sacrifice all the time. That saying it makes it seem like you can just find like you love what you do and it doesn't even feel like work because that's not true either. There's parts of it that definitely feel like work. There's st- like So, uh, as you can hear probably the passion in my voice, I hate that saying because it's in my experience, the furthest from the true. When you love what you do, you literally have never worked harder and you won't stop because you love what you do. So yeah,
1: that's, that's the one for me that sticks out like a sore thumb. That's fabulous. Well, Dan, thank you for a great and super insightful conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really had a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars out of the way. Stick around, because after the credits I'm gonna play a song by Honest Mechanic, the indie folk super duo featuring Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters, and Paul Anson from the band The Grown-Up Noise. For more information and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number 4 you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Please make sure that you follow the podcast on all your favorite social platforms, on Instagram and Twitter. The handle is at al4edp with a letter D and on Facebook, look for authentic leadership for everyday people. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using squatcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo. Who also played keyboards and drums with the assistance of Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here's a song from Honest Mechanic. It's called Glory. Enjoy.
2: Thank you.